0: Welcome to the SG Engage podcast, where it's all social good all the time. Sit back and relax as the brightest minds from across the social good community engage with trends, big ideas, and best practices to help you drive impact. Today's episode features an excerpt from the Blackbaud Institute Index's 10th anniversary celebration. Chuck Longfield, renowned data scientist, philanthropy strategist, and the creator of the Blackbaud Institute Index, join Steve McLaughlin to share what he's learned from creating the index and how organizations can navigate the road ahead. Click on the links in the show notes to access more resources and to watch the full webinar. Steve, we're going to kick it over to you. Thanks everyone for joining us today. I've been looking forward to today's chat for quite a while. Um, was very fortunate enough to, to work with Chuck for Chuck alongside Chuck for a number of years at Blackbaud and, uh, one of the things that was always true is uh, in almost every meeting or discussion, I always learned something. So um, hopefully that will be true for everyone here today as well. So first, welcome, Chuck. Thank you. Good to be here. Maybe one place to start is why the index? You know, Try and go back in the time machine and think about why a decade ago you felt it was really important to to develop um, something like the Blackbaud Institute Index? What was the impetus behind it and what really drove your interest in creating something like this? Yeah, that's
1: a good question. Uh, You know, I've spent an awful lot of time in looking at data around philanthropy, and it's been a challenge over the years with organizations having different metrics of performance and... Those metrics of performance are supposed to then lead towards actions that organizations take. And but because there really isn't any good standard in a lot of these metrics, different organizations sort of can pick and choose their metrics, can pick and choose the definitions of their metrics, and it causes organizations, I think, too often to come to the wrong conclusion about maybe what that next step should be. And so for, for many of the years that I I've been uh, had been working in this area, I wanted to try to standardize these metrics, create some transparency around the metrics and have the metrics be statistically valid and representative of, of what is actually happening so that there can be sort of a foundation, a common set of, of uh, meanings that uh, that uh, the industry uses So that was the, the broad hope. You know, an example is, is is donor retention, sort of a bedrock metric or, or uh, you know, an important stat uh, that an organization needs to know about how well are they actually retaining donors and, and um, you know, you spend so much money to acquire a new donor and then obviously you want to try to hold on to them. One of the, the sectors that I did a lot of work in was in public broadcasting and I can tell sort of why historically that uh, sector was one of the first. but I used to look at a public broadcasting stations and how they tried to retain donors. And so you would look at, say, the largest station, and they would send out 10 notices, and the first one would be telemarketing, the next one would be mail, then maybe they did an email one or two, and then they do some more mail, and then maybe near the end they do another telemarketing or some combination of that. But then you go to the next public broadcasting station and they don't do telemarketing at the beginning. They do mail at the beginning, maybe three mail uh, messages and then one email and then they and some don't wouldn't even do telemarketing. But anyways, if I went to a hundred PBS stations, I'd have a hundred permutations of these um, channels of how they would actually communicate with the donor to get them to renew their membership. And I used to think there can't possibly be a hundred best practices. You know, when when you would talk to uh, the person who was in charge of membership at a station and you would say, well, why do you do telemarketing first and mail second? They would all say, well, we've tested it and this is what's best in Philadelphia and this is what's best in Pittsburgh. And and I, I would think. Well, it can't possibly be best. You know, the the donors in Pittsburgh can't be that different than the donors in Philadelphia, or even if there are some differences, there can't be a hundred different permutations. And so the challenge then is, is that, well, who is actually getting the best retention and with with, um, which populations of donors? And so that led us to create, you know, a product that was then called DonorCentrics, which actually looked at very specific donor retention um, behaviors and try to understand who is actually doing well. Now, that was only the first part because then I could say, well, Station A is actually doing a better job than Station B. Change management is a completely different issue about, mm-hmm. well, how do you actually get Station B to even believe that the way Station A does, does it is better and that it would be better for Station B? And so then we started saying, well, we have to get these people in the same room. We have to talk about the practices. We have to try to understand the nuances in each of the markets, and um, and through that we can actually start to define best practices. And we can say this is better than that, and there can be some agreement around the table. But that that is a very difficult process to go through. And um, and uh, you know many other uh, fields have actually worked through those issues, like real estate or medicine or Healthcare things like that, but in phil- uh, philanthropy, it, it uh, we're still, I would say, even almost at the early stages of that.
0: Yeah, I think you talked about before making the comparison to the medical field. So there aren't a hundred different ways to do an appendectomy. There's <laughs> <That's> maybe three, <laughs> and they figured out what those are, and people are trained to you know perform that operation or you know, procedure in a multitude of ways. And I think part of what you found was the key was, you know, using benchmarks, but really what it was was showing, hey, there can't be a hundred ways to do this. And so if we could compare results, you're going to find that some organizations do a better job than others, but the nature of the nonprofit sector lends itself to organizations wanting to share, hey, what is it that you're doing that you're getting 15% better in new donor acquisition versus if if this was the corporate world, uh, as an example, you know, I, I don't think we could get Coke and Pepsi to sit at the same table and compare <laughs> their soda sales results and say, well, how are you doing that in Des Moines? But you were able to get that to work. And even to this day, we still run donor centrics with 40 plus groups every year. You know, was there resistance at the beginning of that or or what, what, what changed over time were people accepting that was a way to learn what was really working or what, what wasn't?
1: Yeah, no, no, that's a, that's a good observation. So, so when, so the very first group of, of benchmark organizations that we got together were public broadcasting stations. They were the top, actually they were the top seven of the top 10 public broadcasting stations. And it wasn't too hard to get those stations in the same room. For the most part, they knew each other, the people who ran development at each of those organizations knew each other. And um, and they're not really competitive. So it doesn't make any difference if Boston shares an idea with Los Angeles and Los Angeles uses the idea and has great results from it because it's no skin off of Boston. It's And then hopefully LA shares something with Boston that causes Boston to do better. So they were non-competitive And as long as they were collegial and respectful of each other, nobody was laughing in the meeting at somebody's results saying, boy, you really stink at this. Um, We're way better. Um, And we would do a lot to try to make sure that it stayed collegial. And uh, over time, we built out more and more organizations that did that. But I remember when we started doing the national health groups, because that actually was our second group. Oh, in fact, actually, our second group were universities, but they, too, weren't competitive. So it made really no difference if Harvard's philanthropy did better than Yale's, although there's a little bit of puffing your chest out between those organizations. But when we did the national health groups, there is competition between those organizations. Many of the donors that actually give to American cancer also give to American Heart, and um, mostly because they've exchanged their lists so much over the years. And, uh, and the same would be true of diabetes, Alzheimer's, multiple sclerosis, et cetera. And, um, and so we, uh, we did the benchmarking, and we had a report that actually showed on many measures of fundraising performance, how uh, these national health groups did compare to each other. And, um, and we had our first meeting, and they were all sitting around the table, I think there were six or eight of them. And one person, and I wish I could remember, I think it was a person from Arthritis Association, actually broke the ice because in these reports were the inner secrets of all of these organizations, how well they did at almost every area of fundraising. Uh, And the person um, made a joke about, it's a little bit nervous to see these things on a piece of paper and and to be talking about them. But she said, um, but we're all on each other's exchange lists and seed lists and stuff. And so we probably get to see what each other are doing 15 minutes after we come up with any new idea. So it's not really all that big of, of, uh, of an issue that we can see how each other are performing and why. And as a result, the following subsequent discussion among the group was so rich between very seasoned professional fundraisers about why they do what they do and what their experiences have been in the past and you know they have gone on to do that benchmarking from that first year, which was probably now 25 years ago, doing it every single year, year after year, um, so that they can see their relative performance and, and who's doing well. And they went on to do it in in the the athons, the bike athons, and and many different areas of of uh, fundraising.
0: I think one question that often comes up on this topic that I often hear is, well, how do you know? Like, how do you know that this uh, works better or that this organization is performing better? And I think partly because of your mathematics and statistics background, you, you put a lot of rigor into not only sort of proving it, if you will, but a lot of the work behind the scenes to make sure it's statistically significant and accurate—that, that you know—you wanted to make sure that that organizations had trust in what was being displayed. Maybe for the audience, break down a bit of like, you know, how do you know, Chuck? How do you know that that is better? How do you know that this is performing better? What goes into making that work behind the scenes?
1: One of the things I find amazing in our industry is is that there's actually a lot of academics, much like those two professors, Case and Schiller, that I worked with on the real estate prices. There's a lot of professors in the country, in the United States, a couple of hundred of them, that actually do research into philanthropy. And yet, most nonprofits have no idea either who these people are or what is the research that they're actually doing. And that group of, of uh, academics, they have PhDs. They have uh, degrees in statistics. And they are doing very rigorous tests. But they publish, for the most part, among themselves. And they they promote it. They, they further an industry based on that knowledge. And it's not necessary that they actually get those practices into the real world so that that nonprofits use them they mostly are, their responsibility is to actually make sure that they're doing their own tests correctly and publishing it in academic journals, which never get read by a fundraiser, or rarely get read by a fundraiser. And so I, did a te- I started to contact these people a number of years ago about doing more tests with nonprofits and I did a very large scale test with thank you calls. And there was a feeling among a lot of uh, people in the industry that if you call a donor after um, they give a gift, that they'll give more money. If you call them and thank them, that they'll give more money. And so I thought, that's a great practice. If that's true, that's a great practice. And so started to recommend it to a number of nonprofits that they try it out. And we did it, and in the initial years, with the initial organizations we were doing, it worked. They were actually getting better retention rates, higher average gifts from those people that we called and thanked. But to be rigorous, I then contacted an academic, Anya Samek, who was at the University of Chicago. She's now uh, in California at a university, and I think it's USC, but yeah, I think it's USC. And she agreed to do a large scale test. And so we found a few hundred nonprofits and hundreds of thousands of thank you calls and handed her the data. And what she found was that there was no lift with the thank you calls. It, it was, it, there was no negative to it, you can call a donor and thank them, um, but there was no positive lift in terms that would compensate for the cost of doing it. And we found that strange. But we had done hundreds of thousands of calls across many organizations. And, And by the way, the way the academic field works is peer review, I do not know of anybody who has done hundreds of thousands of thank you calls and has shown that it actually provides a lift. I know people who do a small number of thank you calls and swear by it, but nobody who does a large scale statistically valid test that would counter this. And the academics would love to see those results and under what conditions do they work, but it needs to actually be a more rigorous test. We as an industry are enormous. The billions of dollars in our industry practically rivals healthcare. And so we could merit that kind of research, but as an industry, we tend not to do it. We don't do it right now, or the professors that do it sort of live within their own world and it doesn't uh, um, bleed out into the actual world of practice.
0: Appreciate you spending some time with us here today. and You're
1: welcome. Thanks, Steve.